On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Plum, and Plum was raised by a victim playing narcissistic mother. It's a story of generational trauma, an abusive relationship, gaslighting, silent treatments, and abuse cycles. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Plum. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Brandon? I am doing well. And if you want to be a guest like Plum is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And there is a content warning for this episode as we do have a graphic description of intimate partner violence for this episode. And today's story is a family story, and it is also a relationship story as well. Everything comes full circle together here, and Plum's mother makes appearances in her relationship here and there as well. And without this relationship, Plum may have never realized who her mom really was. So just a really big thank you to Plum for being here with us. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way, Plum. The floor is now yours. Thank you, Randon. Um, I will say that it is a pleasure to be here. I've been listening to the show for several years now, um, and it was one of my goals for this year to tell my story. So I'm happy to be here doing that. Um, I would say my story is more as a family story, of course, um, that feeds into a bit of my uh, a narcissistic ex-husband. Um, but they're very much linked. And so I kind of want to tell them, tell the story in that way. I am from a, a family of immigrants. The, my parents came to the U.S. Uh, in the 70s, 60s, late 60s, uh, early 70s. And um, I think that that trip, probably for both of them, was really about getting away from their own family. Uh, issues and influences. Um, my mother's from a very large family. Uh, they are 13. Um, actually, well, they're t they are 12 now. One passed away as a child. Um, and then there are two like additional uh, children by my grandfather. So they're, and they, so it's a big family. Um, and they don't, they're not close. They don't really get along. There's a lot of competition. Um, among them. And as a child, that was kind of the dynamic I was used to. I didn't have any like words for how people behaved or anything, but you knew kind of that, like, I had a lot of aunts. They all looked like the same person in different versions, but it, there was really not a closeness there. There was really no like sharing that you would expect between sisters or brothers or anything like that. Um, so that meant that means that they're all kind of independent so that our households are very kind of isolated, insulated one from another. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of 
outside support. I'm an only child. Um, my uh, father has two brothers, but they were back in this country where he came from. Um, and so we were kind of a pretty insulated uh, family. Um, I found out later on in life that my mother revealed it to me just before my wedding, um, that she had been uh, sexually assaulted by my father. And that is how she got um, pregnant with me. And as a result, I'm assuming for religious reasons, um, she decided that she would marry him. I don't, I don't know. She's given many different reasons um, why she decided to marry uh, her assault, her assaulter. It was a point I found out later that her sisters made fun of her for. Um, so they would like make comments to her about, oh, isn't, isn't your husband like your rapist or whatever? Ha ha. So that's kind of, that's, that's a family <laughs> that we're talking about here. Um, I would say that my childhood was really characterized by neglect. Um, but not the type of neglect maybe that people would notice. So I had food. Uh, my mother was a registered nurse. She made a lot of, a, a good amount of money. Um, my father was actually a classical musician um, and had come to the U.S. to study at like a big university uh, in New York. She kind of got in his way of finishing um, his studies. So he never finished um, his classical music studies. But that's kind of how I knew him as like, you know, playing piano and um, being obsessed with Rachmaninoff and all these other uh, things, which weren't common. We are Black, which wasn't common. So I think part of him not um, graduating had to do with that, the fact that there weren't many positions um, for him that were kind of in the uh, traditional classical music space uh, in the U.S. Um, so... In addition to being a classical musician, um, my father was a, he was a, 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 for the streets. <laughs> he liked to bet on horses and, you know, um, go to the casino. While my mother's image was very much like pious, um, you know, go to church and be perfect. Um, my mom told me later on she had a little bit of an eating disorder as a youth so she always like had to be slim and her clothes had to fit her like perfectly and um and I do remember very early um that you know my father would like make fun of her a lot um and I was expected to kind of like go along and laugh um and my mother would nitpick at him right like why are you doing this why are you doing that why don't you you know do the right thing um she moved us farther away from where we originally lived to try to get him away from the horse track. Little did she know that she moved closer to a larger horse track. <laughs> um, so that, that was dumb. But um, their dynamic, that's pretty much what I remember about their dynamic. She being teased and he being nicked, basically. Um, they separated when I was three. Uh, my dad left supposedly to go to his mother's funeral. She did pass away, so he did go to his mother's funeral. Um, but then he didn't come back. Um, and I think during that time, maybe it was like two years, um, he had a child with someone else there in his country um, and sent my mom pictures. I don't know if she was supposed to be proud. I don't know what the pictures were for, but she showed them to me. Um, and 
And so I would say that the other thing that really uh, characterized my childhood was kind of adultification. Um, my mother wasn't, didn't share. Well, I guess any sharing of that type is a lot, but it wasn't, she didn't rely on me for anything else beyond that. She would occasionally show me like pictures that he sent her and say, you know, how oh, this is ridiculous. Um, but in that area, I wasn't privy to a lot of information. Um, I was adultified in another interesting way. And that's why I say I was neglected. Um, and that is basically that I was expected to do everything for myself. So once my father left, it picked up more. But at around two and a half, three, my mom stopped holding my hand in public. Um, and I remember um, having a conversation with her where I was trying to like negotiate what I could hold on to, right? Okay, can I hold on to your elbow? No. Can I hold on to your like pocketbook? No, you're going to break the strap. Uh, can I hold on to your pant leg? No, you're going to wrinkle my um, and so basically it was like, you're on your own in public. Um, we're, we're not from like the countryside. <laughs> we were from, you know, a pretty good area, well, a suburban area of a big city. Um, and so I remember just feeling like, oh God, you know, what am I going to do? Like how, and I would be in public and like ha laser, like laser focus on her because if I lost her, that was it. And I also do remember I used to suck my fingers, like as a kid, you know, how you suck your thumb. Um, at some point I changed from thumb to fingers. And I remember being in public, especially like in department stores and random men coming up to me and saying, oh, does it taste like chocolate? And me being like, what? But my mother was nowhere around. You know what I mean? Like if I took my eye off her, then I would like get more attention from people. And I perceived that as like scary. Like, where is my mother? She wasn't paying attention. Um, so I had to like, you know, run away and like find her. Um, so anyway, that that's kind of the kind of uh things that happened. Um, she also would take kind of revenge on me if I embarrassed her in any way that, you know, a four-year-old will usually embarrass you by telling your business or anything. Um she got revenge one time by kind of setting me up so that she told me, you know, to go to the house uh, and get something for her um, and don't let my friends in. And I did. I obeyed what she said. And I told my friends to wait out on the porch. Um, but a few minutes in, the friends come running up the stairs and my mother is like close behind them. I don't know if she let them in. I don't know. But uh, when she, of course, I hid them in the closet because I was scared. I was like, what are you doing in here? Um, and so she comes in my room, she opens the closet immediately. Um, they're in there like, you know, mice, <laughs> frightened mice. And she, they like run out and she slaps me across the face, like while they're still in the room. Um, I think I was like six, six or seven, not even, not more than seven because we lived in the old house. So um, she smacks me across the face and I'm assuming this was a spanking, right? When you get a spanking you are supposed to stay in your room afterward. But she said, no, go outside now. And I was like, oh, well, that's weird, but hey, good. <laughs> I don't have to stay here with you. Maybe I'll get more spanking. So I go outside. All my friends are making fun of me. Ah, your mama hit you in the face. Ah! 
Um, I think my father was similarly neglectful. He was like, we were quote unquote close, but whatever opportunity he had to drop me at the babysitter, he was going to take it. Um, and so if he had me for the morning um, and the time to drop me off at the babysitter was 11, he dropped me off at six. Um, if the time to drop me off at the babysitter was seven, he dropped me off at five. And so I lost a lot of babysitters because of that. Um, he left me alone one time when I was about two and a half. Um, and I ran to the neighbor's house because I was scared. It was in the winter, I remember. Um, and when I got back, this is the only time he gave me a spanking um, for like whatever, not behaving. And I, it was a lame spanking. I pretended to cry and he stopped. But I thought, what a, later on, I'm thinking that's an interesting message to send, right? Um, I'm going to leave an infant or a, a toddler in the house by herself. And she's just supposed to like take care of herself and not like cause problems or tell people or um so that was like the mother father piece um like I said when my dad when I was three my father left and so it was just me and my mom um and a lot of things kind of ratcheted up right so from what I saw before in terms of like the the neglect and like expecting me to do things for myself um, being left alone in the house or being expected to dress myself and walk to the babysitter um, when I woke up in the morning. Um, that was all like three and below. Um, once we get to three and above, <laughs> we add a few things to that. Um, there was definitely a feeling that when I did things, anything I did wrong, right, as a kid, um, was like the end of the world. Um, and you know, you broke my, this, you did that, you know, you dropped this and I was pretty careful in the house. So, um, it was the end of the world, but when she did it or she dropped something or broke something, it was fine. And that's something I noted like, huh? Um, she would kind of give me challenges sometimes. Like if I was late for school in the morning, um, she would, you know, say, oh, you have to get, you have to get to school you know, we have to get you to school on time because I'm getting late for work and they're going to be upset with me and da 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 da. Um, but she wouldn't allow me to kind of prepare myself. So I wasn't allowed, for example, to like put things near the front door so that I could be ready earlier, right? That was too messy. No, you can't, you can't leave, you know, your shoes there. You can't leave your bag there. Um, and she would set me up like that a lot. Right. I would it would kind of always be this issue. Okay, okay, let me help myself to do what you're asking me to do. Um, and I was not allowed really to help myself. So I set things up in my bedroom, like try to set things up in my bedroom and see if I could um like meet her expectations. I stopped after a while as I got into my teens, I would just be late and she would just scream. But um in my younger years, I would really like try hard to do things. Um in the way that she was asking it was impossible because you would get in trouble either way. Um, the other piece I noticed like later on into my childhood was definitely this idea that other people's parents would tell them things um, in terms of boundaries, like where they could go, where they couldn't go. Um, but in my case, I only understood the boundary when I broke it. Um, and sometimes I would make up rules for myself uh, so I'd feel like similar to the other kids. Um, for example, I didn't have any limitations on the TV shows that I watched. Like if we had the channel, I'd 
could watch it. Nobody's paying me attention. Um, but I invented that I couldn't watch soap operas um, because I think it made me feel like someone was like looking out for me. So if we were at my friend's house and a soap opera came on, I'd be like, oh no, I can't watch it. My mom says I can't watch soap operas. <laughs> anyway, so it was kind of this very like benign-ish, right, to the outside um, neglect, kind of emotional you know, type of neglect. I did my own hair starting at age eight. No one did my hair for me. She just stopped. Um, and so I had to do my hair. I had to get my, iron my clothes. I had to wash my clothes um, by myself. Um, later on into my teens, as I became like a bit more independent, um, you know, doing things for myself, I'd get rides from friends to go to school. So I didn't always need her. She definitely continued like the fighting in the morning. Like she needed a little bit of gas for her day. So the morning ride to school was always was required. I wasn't allowed to take the bus unless she was working overnight. Um, and that ride was going to be a fight. Like she needed a little, I, I realized later she needed like her morning fuel from me. Um, uh, and so I would arrive to school really like upset a lot of days. Um, but as I became more independent, she kind of turned backward and she tried to kind of make me more dependent on her. Uh, and so that's when like the new set of behaviors um, began. A lot of that had to do with um, like her requiring that she pick me up when she would in, in grade school, for example, she would leave me waiting um, after like an event at school until eight or nine o'clock outside uh, for her to come pick me up. And as I got older, she would insist, right, that she had to pick me up um, or that I couldn't come back to someone. Um, I'll fast forward a bit. I was I was um, diagnosed with an autoimmune disease in high school, and um, my symptoms were basically like you know joint pain and I had a lot of issues um, um, around joint pain, inflammation, etc. And then she she became very like attentive in that area. Um, as a kid as well, I had stomach issues. Like younger kid, I had stomach issues. Um, I remember her taking me to the to the uh, emergency room one time when I was smaller and she was always very attentive like when I was sick she would like be there like she was you know making soup and she was you know getting what I needed um other times she was like not paying me much of mine um and so I as I developed that in high school she's the one who brought it up she said oh you know I was having an issue like my thing my hands were turning white uh, in the cold. And she said, oh, you might have this autoimmune disease. We have to take you to the doctor because um, she was a nurse. So that's how it was found early. I had a pretty mild case. Everything was going well. But I'd say through high school and college, like the more independent I got, I was always thwarted by being getting sick, number one, right? I would get sick, sicker. Um, she would rescue me. I would stay home for a while. Um, she would cook and, you know, do other things for me. And then, you know, I try to go back to school. Um, through college, I got sicker as college went on uh, to the point where I had to, to uh, I finished early. I finished like a semester or so early because I was sick. I was really, really sick. So I was, um, I was a good student. Like I was like top of my class in the eighth grade. I think school for me was like the place where I would get like validation. I had clear rules. Um, I kind of knew where I stood. And so um, that's 
kind of the place where I focus most of my attention. As a kid, as a younger child, I also did like singing and and stage productions and things. Um, but my mother stopped coming to my shows. Um, and so I had kind of stopped doing them. Like I, I thought maybe I was doing badly or something. I didn't really get any feedback on that. And that was also a thing that is very, I think through my life, I don't get feedback. They don't say if you did bad or if you did well, if they're proud of you or they're not proud of you, you don't know. Um, so because I kind of focused my energy on school, I made sure to like go to Ivy League uh, University um, thinking, I don't think I was thinking at the time that I was like making her proud. I just felt like this was my identity now. Like I'm the smart kid. Um, everything's clear, right? There's a rule. You know what the rule is. You know what the boundaries are. Um, you know, if Mrs. XYZ doesn't like this, you know it. And I liked that. Like, I was like, okay. There's, there's, you know, for you, school, and I'm going to say most likely work, even though there could be a lot of pressure, there's a stability for you there because you consistently know where you stand and you're, you have your footing beneath you there. Yeah, definitely. And it was easy for me. Like, I, you know, I... Because I had I had other trauma responses that I haven't gotten in, gotten into, um, but one of them was of course reading excessively, um, and so you know school was very easy for me. I don't think I had to really study in school until college, um, and I got a rude awakening in college. <laughs> I got a C on like a pretty easy class, and I was like, "What? Did I have to like really write this paper?" I was like, "Rude." Um, but yeah, so I think. Um, once I graduated college, I, I was a little depressed because I didn't have that anymore. Um, so, you know, you always get you always get to do a master's degree. And that's like the first thing I did. <laughs> um, and for the master's degree, I actually moved. So I went to college in the same state that I grew up in, was born in. Um, but to do this mass, the first master's degree I did, I did it in another state. Um, and so. I think that that changed the dynamic between myself and my mother, you know, a lot. She had less control. Um, you can ask anyone I went to college with. They all know who my mother is. They knew what she looked like. because she was always there picking me up. And like, you know, either I was sick or she was just coming by to like look in on me. So in grad school, you changed doctors and you went to a well-known one at a big medical center for your autoimmune disease. So what happened from here? She prescribed me a protocol that basically had started identifying some more kidney issues that I was having related to my, um, my, uh, autoimmune disease. Um, while I was doing my master's degree, we kind of followed followed it. I was worked up every month and um, et cetera, and I was pretty stable. Um, but I was put on a drug, like a, a trial. And in the trial um, for the drug, um, I had some really bad uh, side effects. And the doctor would not believe me, you know, that I was having these side effects. You'd be dead if you, you know, such and such was happening to you. Um, and so I ended up having to pull out of that drug trial. Um, and I wasn't given much uh, in terms of follow-up uh, from the hospital, but I started doing like these natural you know, treatments. And so I was still moving along pretty well. 
Um, I graduated that program. I started kind of my first big job after my master's degree. Um, I continued to live in that new state. And around the time I was like 25, so I, ha I had been being followed up for like two, three years, my kidneys failed, like kaput. There was no like lead up. I was doing my follow-ups um, and I went to the hospital. I ended up starting dialysis. Um, and uh, from then on, you know, my kidneys failed. Um, I did chemotherapy as the alternate treatment to back the, the other, the, 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 the study I was in the years before that I got the pill, um, I was randomized to the pill. But the standard treatment was chemotherapy. So I ended up also doing chemotherapy after my kidneys failed because they thought it might like kick up like your kidney function. Um, it didn't work, but I did the chemo. So now in retrospect, I realized that my kidneys failed after twice that year. The second time was in August. That was after a visit to my mother's. So February was after Christmas and August was after this visit to my mom. Um, and my mother, during the time that I was in the hospital, was very kind of distant, right? She would be there. She was there every day no, without fail. But she was kind of just sitting and watching. Um, when I needed intervention, like when doctors would do, you know, things that weren't ethical, which happens a lot if you've ever been a patient um, and you have to defend yourself. She's a nurse. So you would think that like she would intervene and be like, hey, don't do that or don't give her this medication. But she didn't. She just kind of sat there and was like a presence. Um, and I had to defend myself. I had to be awake all night to make sure that they like weren't giving me things that were going to make me internally bleed. I didn't notice that she wasn't being active. That's just what I was used to. Um, she had made a big show of, of offering me a kidney when I was in the hospital and my kidneys failed and I went on dialysis. I thought she would do it eventually. Um, but she informed me that she was not going to be giving me the transplant, the, the a donation, um, and that she was afraid that if we were both sick, there would be no one to take care of us. Um, you remember that she has 13 siblings. Most of them are nurses. Um, so that made no sense to me. Um, so once my kidneys failed, I was on dialysis. Um, I decided um, to leave that job. Uh, I did a couple things in the middle. And then I started a PhD program uh, while I was on dialysis. So I moved back to the state that I was from. I found a dialysis center. Um, and I started a PhD program. When I was in that program, I got no help. Like there was, like I said, I didn't get any feedback. I got no like validation. Um, and so I would be actively thwarted a lot of times. Um, and so like one example is hearing my classmates talk about how like their mom, like will make them dinner or deliver dinner to them um, because they're working on their PhD. And I was waking up at 5.30 in the morning, driving to the city, going to dialysis, um, and then after dialysis, going to work, and then after work, going to classes, um, and coming home at like 10 o'clock at night, um, and, you know, trying to fix myself a little bit of food, and there was never food prepared for me. Um, my mother would come down and, like, scream at me if she smelled, like, the smallest, you know, smell of food screaming and I'm like trying to destroy her house and I don't care about her 
where she lives, and I, I, whatever insanity that she was talking about, um, which made me stay out longer. So um, later on, I realized that that time was parallel to a time that she was always talking about this health insurance, this life insurance, I should say, that she had taken out for me when I was a kid. Um, she had had the life insurance since I was a baby. Um, and she promised me at some point, like when I was in grad school, like, so I was like 23-ish, um, that she was going to take this money out before the policies expired when I was 24 um, and give it to me so I could buy an apartment. And I was, you know, excited about that. I thought, oh, that would be great, you know, start um, that. But like my birthday came and went and I didn't hear anything. Um, I didn't really get upset about it because, again, I was used to kind of, I guess, future faking. Um, but she came to me to explain that some guy came to the door, some crazy story about someone stole it basically from her. So she didn't have the money. Um, but that same year is the year, like, you know, when my kidneys failed. And I was wondering, I wondered later on, like, are those two things kind of linked together? Like, did you get the insurance money? Um, you know, if I died before that year or not, I don't want to, I don't think she meant to like kill me. I think she just meant to make me dependent. Um, but I never understood like what the terms of that insurance money was, um, what happened to it. <laughs> um, if, if she was able to take it out and use it, like it was just kind of this whole hodgepodge, but it did make me later on kind of suspicious and I'll tell you like how I ended up linking <laughs> linking them together later on uh after my guinea spill I went to school I you know I was working um and uh I got cancer so after like the same year as my kidneys failed um because of the medication which is the same medication that I had to come off when I was in grad school because it was giving me side effects that medication is a medication that actually caused me to have uh, cancer in my, in my intestines. Um, so I did chemotherapy again while I had the transplant. Um, and I did pretty well on it. Um, and kind of during the time I was doing chemo, I was still working. I did well on the chemo. The like, tumors were, you know, gone um, after maybe the second chemotherapy treatment. Uh, I had also applied to like what was my dream job during that time. So I was still in school. I hadn't finished my PhD, um, but I had just applied to this job. Um, and after the chemo was finished and I finished my qualifying exams for my PhD as well, I got a call that I had gotten this like dream job um, and that I was going to move back to the state where I did my um, master's degree. Um, I had a new kidney, like, you know, I, the kidney was working fine still. I didn't have cancer anymore. I was, um, that job turned out to be hell, but it was also, um, kind of the beginning of a lot of things for me, including like living outside of the country for almost a decade. Um, and that's also how I met my ex-husband, but I'm going to finish the story about my mom quickly. Um, basically she would come visit me in the countries that I lived in uh, with that job. Um, and as I got better, kind of, 
you know, the farther away I got from her, the less illness I had. Um, and I, she, she made a comment to me in one visit, basically that like, you know, her friends always ask about me uh, and they always ask her how she's doing. Um, and I kind of got the feeling that like my being ill for her was also a way for her to like get attention like from her friends. Um, she really liked to be kind of a, a victim in the way like she had a phrase that she would always say to me that her friend, her name started with a B. So that her friends would always say, poor B, poor B, you know, you're going through so much. Um, both when I was sick and before, I guess she would tell them stories about like horrible things that happened to her. And they'd go, oh, poor B. And she didn't tell them like she was like ashamed or anything. She was like, that was a positive thing to her, right? That people would like feel um, compassion for her. Uh, and so I think my being sick was like a way for her to get that. Um, she used to say a lot, like, especially when I was very, very sick, she would always interject. Well, I, I think I have this disease too. You know, sometimes my joints hurt me um, or sometimes X, Y, Z. And I would, everybody would ignore her, uh, but she always like, you know, when to kind of throw that in. Um, maybe to see how if people would like turn their attention from me who was half dead, maybe um, to her. But um, yeah, the victimhood also showed itself up in just she would make a decision. So we lived in a pretty big house uh, that she bought when I was like eight. Um, and she complained, she would complain, 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 complain about everything she had to do for the house, for me buying me clothes, doing this, doing that. It was horrible. You know, her life was horrible. I was horrible. It was the worst thing that ever happened to her because she has to she has to feed me and clothe me. And she has to work so hard. And and the moment I'd be like, okay, say I had, when I had my dream job, for example, okay, mom, let me buy you like this dishwasher you're complaining about. Or she's complaining that she has to pay. Okay, I'll pay him. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, you don't have to do that. Don't you, don't you think I don't have money? You think, you think I'm poor? <laughs> it's like, well, why are you complaining? Um, but it was a, it was a show, right? That was the show and you're supposed to do, you're supposed to like pat her on the back, which I never did because it wasn't something that I learned to do either. Right. I didn't get it. So I didn't learn how to do that. So we just discussed your mom, and now we will get into your relationship. And eventually this will all come back to your mom. But for now, let's just get to it all kind of starting with you trying to get away from a terrible boss and moving overseas to work. And this is where you meet your future husband and the abuser in your life, in your relationship life. So give us a primer first of your dating life before we get into the meeting of your husband. I didn't really date much in um, high school. I didn't date at all in high school. I didn't date at all in college. Um, my first boyfriend was when I was 22. Um, he uh, has bipolar. Um, I didn't know that then. He kind of developed, he, he was um, diagnosed after we broke up, which was a drama in itself um but i've never i didn't really date much um i'm pretty like isolated um and 
most of my dating occurred like in my 20s. Um, and all of them had something, had something going on. Um, so I didn't date in my 30s. I don't think I even have like a boyfriend. Like maybe I went on dates, um, but I didn't have a relationship in my 30s at all. And I met my ex-husband when I was 40. I had just turned 40. Um, I was living in that second country that I, with that job. And unlike the first country, the second country was pretty like lonely for me. I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, I had joined this like expat group to meet people. And that's how we met through that expat group. Um, he had written me like through their website, you know, the, like they'll have like a social media ish type of website, um, several times, maybe for nine months, um, before actually, we actually met. So he had written me, um, and I really wasn't open to meeting him. He didn't seem interesting to me. (laughs) I would kind of write back like, yeah, okay, um, sir. And then he'd write again. And maybe three months later, I'd write him back. But um, I had done some like executive coaching uh, at the end of 2016. And part of that executive coaching really led me to understanding like I don't have to live in this nightmare of a job. I can get out. Um, and so I had made a plan to quit. Um, I like, wrote my resignation letter. I had been there almost nine years at this point. I wrote my resignation letter. And I had like the date that I was going to give it in. Um, so I was feeling good. And he wrote me um, at that time. And so I said, oh, you know, might as well. Like, you know, this guy keeps writing. You might as well just meet him. Um, and so we planned a date for that. He was out of the city. So we planned a date for like that January. So this is January of 2017. Um, we meet. Um, he's actually like attractive. I had asked my friend to call me like 30 minutes in. So I could say I had to leave in case I didn't like, like him. Um, so when she called me, I was like, no, go away. You know, I'm fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I got there. Um, the whole date, which was like at a Starbucks, which in that country was actually a big deal. It's not like here. Um, the whole date was like a big red flag, but because I'm dumb, I <laughs> didn't notice that. <laughs> One of the red flags um, was my feeling, right? Like the moment I saw him, I like had like, oh my God, like butterflies. Oh my God, he's so attractive. And I just told you that I don't date a lot. It's not that I don't meet people a lot or that I don't meet like attractive men. I'm just usually not interested. (laughs) Um, And like, that was just like, (gasps) Um, the second red flag was he would talk about his ex-wife, that he was divorced. He told me he had you know, two kids, um, and his ex-wife had ended the relationship because she falsely accused him of being physical with her. This is on the first date. And, um, like, I was just like, oh, that's such a shame. Um, and so after that date, like, I, his car was in the shop because um, he had had, like, a small accident. And so I... I think he was getting a taxi. So we're like in my car for a minute. He's like, oh, what are you doing tomorrow? And I was like, nothing. He's like, well, can we watch Netflix together? And I was like, no, <laughs> come to my house. Um, before that date, he had asked me, where do you live? 
this is not a big, this is a big city, but like the area where expats live is pretty small. But I wasn't trying to, I'm from New York. I was like, why do you need to know where I live? And he was very offended. Um, and he was like, you didn't even want to tell me where you live. When I asked you where you lived, you didn't want to tell me. And I said, oh, I'm from New York. Like, why are you coming over? Like, why do you need to know where I live? You know, I live close enough. So he didn't like that. He kept bringing it up. Um, so the next day I wouldn't hang out with him. But um, the next weekend he invited me out to like go dancing or whatever. And from that next weekend on, that was it. Like we were like together. I basically like moved him in, in like week four. Um, we had a little fight um, because he invited me to one of those expat events for that organization and basically like ignored me all night and I got pissed and I like left and he came over later on to apologize, but he didn't apologize. Um, he kind of just gave me like the silent treatment. I didn't know what it was. So I was like, well, why did you come over here if you're not going to say anything? And I kind of kicked him out. Um, and so maybe we didn't talk for a week, week and a half. Um, I like told him not to let him in, let them, him into my building. Like I was very adamant. And I noticed that inside I felt kind of a relief, but I didn't know like why I felt relieved. Um, Anyway, at the end of that period, he came back, he um, apologized. Who knows what words he said? I don't know if it was an actual apology or not. It's something that I took as an apology. Um, and from then on, we were like inseparable. Um, my, he was not divorced. So that's the first thing he told me after we got back together. He was separated. Um, and he like showed me the separation papers. And, you know, he had his kids on the weekends. And I had a policy that I did not date people who are separated, right? Because that means you're still married. Just because you live somewhere else, it doesn't change your face. But I broke my own boundary. And I said, well, you know, we're like already in a relationship now. He showed me the separation papers. Um, and so we were together all the time and we would hang out. You know, this is really, really, really quick. I don't even know if we had another date. Maybe we would go out dancing, but it wasn't like a, you know, like a, I'm getting to know you date anymore. That was it. We were like together. Uh, I told people, one woman in my office knew him and I was like, oh my God, we're in a relationship now. And she looked at me like, I'm sure she was thinking like already, <laughs> you just meet him last month. Um, but to me, that was like fine. Um, and so because it was the beginning of the year. Um, my mom came for a visit around Easter time that year. I don't know if Easter was in March. It must have been in March that year. And she comes for a visit and I introduce him. And for the first time in my entire life, my mom seems like she is approving of someone that I'm dating. Not that I've dated that many people. Um, and she basically says, yes, you should get married. Um, Aside, if you look through my list of the most narcissistic friends that I've had, and I've had a lot because I'm used to, this is what I'm used to. Those are the ones she loves the most. Right? <laughs> so I can kind of like pick off who I need to, who I need to cut off by like, if my mom likes them. But um, she was very pro this marriage. And so we went forward. We were married in July of that year. So from January to July of the same year, we were married. Um, that's because he had time off from work. He was a teacher. Um, we were married in like a third country. Um, 
he had like three guests who came from the country that we met in. Um, they were also problematic because we spent our entire honeymoon with them, but that's another another piece. Um, but as soon as we said I do, as soon as we said I do, he changed. Like he turned it off. He didn't have to do a lot with me. He didn't have to do a lot of like love bombing. Um, that was just in the very early, you know, like in January. Um, we had our we had our wedding published in like a big newspaper here in the U.S. And I remember the reporter called me like during that time. They call you like right almost at the wedding, like the day before. Um, and he did the interview with me. And then he called to do the interview with him. He had come late to the country because he didn't have some vaccine. And I was like crying. Oh, my God, he's not going to get here. What am I going to do? Um, but he finally got there. The reporter asked him, why did you want to marry her? Uh, and he said, because I didn't want to lose her. And something in my gut, he said it twice. Something in my gut said that, is that the right answer? I don't know. But it doesn't, like, it doesn't feel like the right answer, but whatever. Um, I, you know, I barreled ahead with it. I had this great wedding plan. Friends came, you know, to the wedding. It was a small wedding. Um, and um, the moment we we were married, it was done. Um, he started like the silent treatment almost immediately um, for the the day after. Um, we spent every outing during our honeymoon with another couple. This couple who came with came from the country that we were living in. Um, and when I asked for us to like do something by ourselves, he said that he was tired and he needed to take a nap so I could go by myself. So part of my, my, um, honeymoon, I spent by myself on the glass bottom boat, um, taking pictures of like the, you know, sea anemones <laughs> with other couples like around and we're like chitting and chatting. Um, and yeah, it was just a big, you know, letdown. Um, we left the honeymoon, like to different places, right? He went back to the country. Um, I, by that time had quit my job. And so I moved back to the, to the States. Um, and I had started on the process of, um, a green card for him. Um, he had gotten, finally had gotten me my residence in that country. So that if the green card didn't work through, work out, I would just go back and live in that country. I was applying to jobs then in that country and in the U.S., just in case. Um, I ended up getting a job in the U.S., um, and the green card came through like 18 months after. So I was traveling back and forth, right, spending money um, back and forth. He couldn't get a visa to come to the U.S. to visit me. Those 18 months were hell. <laughs> um, we would, like, fight on the phone. Um, when I go down to visit, I didn't, I, I mentioned that I got, a, my kidneys failed and I got a kidney transplant. Um, and a lot of times traveling is difficult for me, even though I do it for work. <laughs> um, I'm tired. I have to sleep. Like after I come off the plane, cause like you're full of fluid and my kidneys need to get rid of it. And I just need to rest. Um, but he would not let me rest until like we slept together. It didn't matter what time of the day or night. Um, and I, you know, started feeling like assaulted. And I said it to him, like, I need to sleep. Like I need to rest after I get here. It's a long flight. Um, I don't feel 
up to like we can do it tomorrow you know it's fine i just need to sleep no well you come here visit me and you should not be telling me that you don't want to do when you are my wife and you're supposed to do blah, 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 blah. um so he kind of would back off but he would just argue with me right during the whole time until you gave in so it was the same thing Besides that, we'd argue on the phone. He gave me a whole list of things I shouldn't ever like mention, including his children, his ex-wife. And then um, once he got here now, so we had been fighting. We had had those tensions in the country. The two friends who came to our wedding also would start chipping in. I'm like, the, the wife would like speak really badly to me. And I would be like, you know, handle your friend. Um, and he's like, well, you can, you can you can defend yourself. Uh, and I was like, I don't know that. Well, you know, what am I going to defend myself with? Anyway, a lot of fights. Once he got here, um, everything ratcheted up again. Once I stopped reacting correctly to the, um, to the silent treatment, he also stopped holding my hand. Um, so like he, you know, he would walk like far away from me on the street. Like it was a very abrupt kind of cut when I was um, devalued uh, in that way. Um, the other thing uh, that I experienced a lot with him, he's, he's very like anxious and high control. Um, and so if I was driving, um, I wasn't allowed to drive the car without the GPS on. Um, and so one of the things I did uh, during that time was that I started noting, I started noting like the cycles. And I have here, it says two days to go up, one day plateau, three days and counting descent. So I must've been in the middle of a, like <laughs> in the middle of one of his things. But I started to count them that way. Cause then I would know like the day that he woke up and acted like nothing was happening. That was the day, first day of the count. Um, and he would get annoyed. He, he would have these things so frequently that if I counted that first day of the count, second day, there'd be another one on day three. Um, and I knew it. So like I was starting to get hip to the hip to the game, but I didn't know what the game was called yet. Uh, I'd say the worst, he, he was definitely a gaslighter. Um, we would kind of set things out on paper, um, maybe our, our chores or things that are supposed to be done. Um, of course, he didn't always do them. And then he would like make up, you know, something that I said or something that I did and that I gave him the impression that I would do. I would cook on Fridays when the chart says clearly that Fridays are like free day, eat what you want to eat. Um, no, you're supposed to cook. You're, you know, you're my wife. You're supposed to cook on Friday. It was, it was just, it was like fight after fight. It was fight after fight. Um, when he didn't have a job, he didn't have a job. Of course, when he first got here, I was holding maybe three jobs at the time. Right. I had gotten um, this, the job that I moved Oh, I didn't mention that. But I moved to states again um, for a job that I got just before he got his green card. Um, so I had that job. Plus, I was like doing some consulting work. Um, plus, oh, plus I was teaching. Um, so I had three jobs. Uh, he came here without a job. He got he did really quickly. Got his social security number. So I was bringing him on job interviews. Um, and after one interview that he felt really good about and they said they would hire him, um, I said, well, would it be possible then until you start your job for you to get like an interim job? 
your teacher. So school is going to start in September. Um, and we've gone on this, you know, job interview in March. Is that we do like, you know, could you maybe work at the supermarket quickly? We lived across from a Whole Foods, for example. Just he lost his mind. Um, how could you tell him? I knew I should not come here until I had a job because you are going to try to make me go outside and like be a street sweeper or, you know, do whatever. And I am not going to do that. And you just don't want me to use anything in the house. Um, you know, you don't want me to eat the food in the house. You don't want me to do anything because I don't have a job. And he like, at some point he goes in our bedroom, crouches on the floor and starts crying like a two-year-old. Um, that I don't want him to eat anything and he's not going to eat anything else in this house anymore. I don't have to worry about it. Um, and, um, you know, it's just like screaming and screaming. Um, that went on like all day. At some point he goes out um, and then he comes back and he goes back in his corners, crouching, you know, screaming, screaming. So once the night came now, I didn't know what to do. Like, I was like, this is crazy. Um, I was like panicking and I ended up calling my mother. Um, and my mother speaks to him later on. I found out that she sent him money through my, through my cousin. Um, and that, that money was for him to buy food. So he wouldn't feel badly because I was not feeding him. Um, he told me your mother has treated me better than anyone who's ever in my life has treated me before. She is just so good to me and I thought why would you believe that I wasn't giving him food like that doesn't make any sense to me um so after he woke up and like acted like nothing happened so this is after he got the money now um he tells me about the money we return the money to her um but this was the start of several instances where she would like send him money or tell me that you know oh he's new here it's so hard for him um and I thought, we need people from the country that we came from all the time. They are here as like janitorial staff when some of them are also teachers, right, in their country um, or, you know, lawyers or whatever. He's not having a hard time. He's not working and he's waiting for like a professional job. It's ridiculous. Um, but over that time, I, be I came to understand I still I was still working my three jobs. But I came to see that my mother would never support me if anything else worse happened in that relationship. And I remember saying it to myself, she's not going to help you. Um, and it ended up being that way. So um, we fast forward. I had tried a lot of different types of therapy with him. Um, we had we had a therapist back in the country that we came from that we would um, see like on the phone uh, once a week because we were just fighting so much. He would like keep me up all night with like these ridiculous circular like arguments and fights about nothing um he would injure me when we were like intimate um and I thinking that it was like my fault because I'm in menopause because of all the times that I went I did chemo um he did gaslight but his main vehicle of uh emotional abuse was the silent treatment he was the king of the silent treatment um his record for me was like two like two weeks and like three or four days of like not um, communicating with me or of communicating with me non-verbally and aggressively. <laughs> um, um, after a while, because it happened so frequently, I stopped reacting to it. 
like I would just cough as though he were answering me basically. Um, and one time he got upset by that and he stopped gaslight. He stopped uh, silent treatment to explain to me what I was supposed to do when he was giving me the silent treatment. So he stopped ignoring me to tell me when I am not speaking to you, you're supposed to come to me and ask me what's wrong. And I said, okay. And when you tell me nothing, he didn't answer me. Then he goes back to ignoring me for another week. Um, but evidently I wasn't doing the silent treatment right. Um, and that annoyed him. But I think that's partially why we escalated or it escalated to being more physical. Um, I wasn't doing the, the silent treatment well. Um, once the pandemic started, um, which was right after a visit from his kids, where I had to like come up with most of the activities for his kids. Um, I had to take off an extra week to take care of his kids because he didn't plan that. Um, everything really intensified. He uh, really got into the, into the silent treatment during the pandemic. So we were locked together. Remember in the beginning of the pandemic, you could barely go out. Um, and so we'd be locked together in our apartment. He would not be speaking to me, aggressively not speaking to me. Um, when he would go out to get groceries, I, because I have a kidney transplant, I'm high risk. Um, and so he wouldn't listen to anything I was trying to ask him to do, like in terms of like washing his hands or, you know, not, I don't know, or like taking off the mask at the door, like those kinds of things he wouldn't listen to. Um, and so I also felt like afraid, like, is he going to like purposely expose me to this thing that at the time we didn't even know, you know, what it, what it could be. Um, so I was definitely in the house and be becoming like more and more afraid. During that time, I kind of looked at the library online. I was picking out books from the library and somehow a recommendation popped up um, for London Bancroft's book. Um, why does he do that? And I had been looking for like reasons, like explanations. Um, and I had actually started watching Narcissist YouTube um, at that time. I think I had started to kind of understand that something was going on. Um, I had known about grandiose narcissism. Um, I have an aunt who's grandiose and I kind of identified her in these. When the book came up, I was like, oh my God, I, like, let me, I need to read this book. The book was out. The book was out for a week. They're all eBooks. They were checked out for weeks. I tried in my old, where I used to live, library. They were checked out for weeks. So I checked it out on Amazon. Um, and the moment I read that book, like I ate it up in like an hour, hour and a half. Um, the one thing I needed to understand, I understood. And it's that everything that he was doing, he was doing it on purpose. I didn't know that. I kind of felt like he was out of, he wasn't in control of his actions. But the, when I finished that book and I understood that he was doing these things on purpose to control me, I was done. That was it. Like there was no more. Um, and so I started making a plan and a friend found me a therapist and we, I would meet with her once a week on our balcony, like with the door closed, um, to plan like how to get out of there um, in a pandemic. <laughs> um, and I think it really only worked for me because I had the upper hand, right? Um, I was a U.S. citizen. He had a green card. 
he had a temporary green card because we hadn't been married for two years uh, when he came here. Uh, and so he needed me to sign his 10-year green card. Um, and that's the only leverage I had to get him out of my out of that apartment and to get out of the situation. Um, I was terrified because once I knew that he was doing it on purpose, I didn't know what else he would do. Um, when you think that like they don't understand what they're doing, you think you know like the boundaries of where they'll go, right? Oh, what they've done before, I wasn't that bad. Um, but just that knowledge really like fucked in my head. I looked, kept my door locked and um, we slept, we would sleep in separate areas. He'd sleep in the living room, I would sleep in the bedroom. Um, and I would just like lock everything. I just became like super paranoid because I realized I didn't know who I was in the house with. I thought I did. So another form of abuse that happened was reversing a situation on you. And there was physicalness and gaslighting to it. And an argument started about his alarm clocks going off at 3 a.m. And these arguments and him berating you at this hour was a lot and you began crying. So what happened from here? So he grabs my arm to like turn me over, like pull me over so he could see me. And I pulled my arm away from him. I was like, just leave me alone. He gets up from the bed. He says, you hit me. And I was like, what did I hit you? You hit me and you were not supposed to be hitting me. We got that paper from immigration that says that if you hit me, I can apply for whatever visa and you're not supposed to hit me. And it's a whole like fight, right? About me hitting him. And I was like, when the, me stupidly, I'm asking when I hit you. I know I did not hit you. But when did I hit you? Oh, when you did this and you flipped your arm, you hit me and whatever. And because I wanted to sleep, I just said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have um and he's like yeah um but what he had done um you know in that time um he had also like grabbed my arm like really hard during that we never got to that right we only got to the fact that like he had been hit um and um you know this was this was I was horrible to have hit him um then after that, uh, I don't remember how much after that. I want to think it was like at the beginning of 2020, we had another incident. Um, this incident occurred during like uh, intimacy. We didn't have a, an intimate life that was like, there was no B, there was no D, there was no S, and there was no M. Um, <laughs> no one was being tied up. Like that was not how we rolled. Um, but during intimacy, he strangled me, um, and like a good strangle. And, and my response, I still think it's so interesting. My response was like, don't do that. Like stop. Right. And he stopped and I was like, you can't do that. We didn't, we haven't talked about that before. Uh, I was very calm, you know, but it caused me so much internal stress that I think maybe the day after or two days after now we're like happy we're like sitting on the couch you know he set up he'd apologize or whatever i got like a huge blood vessel burst in my the in the eye on the same side that he did most of my left side it was like a huge blood vessel burst in my eye so when i went in the bathroom and looked in the in the mirror i think it's still a scar there um 
like my, you know, my eye was all red. And he was there. He was like, oh my God, like what happens here? I was like, I don't know. Uh, and so we're like both, I think I sent a picture to my friend. I was like, oh my God, look at my eye. Of course, I didn't tell her this dude struggling me before. Um, and everybody's like perplexed about my bloody eye. But I tried to tell my mom. So later on, like a few months later, when, when I was like ready to leave now. So that's happened maybe in February of 2020. I read Lundy Bancroft, what, in like March? So that's when I started putting all of these things together. I was like, this dude strangled me. Like if someone can strangle you, they will kill you. Um, and I like started freaking out. I called my mom and I was like whispering because I was afraid he was going to hear me. And I told her like, mom, he, you know, he like strangled me. I don't know what to do. And she tells me, I can't hear what you're saying. You're talking to low. And so I went on the balcony and I was like, mom, like I still wasn't talking loud, but I, you know, I try to talk stronger. And she's like, I still can't hear you. And anyway, um, she had this friend who was um, murdered by her husband when they were like younger, like in their 20s. And she was like trying to make some argument to me. And I said, so you think that your friend like didn't do enough or whatever? That's why her husband killed her. And she says, no, he was just jealous. The husband. Like, you know, very nonchalantly. And she told me, I can't hear what you're saying. So you're going to have to send me a letter in the mail telling me like what, you know, what you're trying to explain to me. And I kind of flashed back to my understanding months before that she would never help me kind of in this situation. Um, and so I understood like, okay, you're not, you're not a source of help right now. Um, so that was kind of the close with my mom too. Another thing that happened with my mom after this, um, issue with my husband and you know we were kind of wrapping that up is that she sat me down one day she had breast cancer um and while we were still together my husband and I brought her to get her tumor like removed it was pretty basic so she didn't have to do chemo or anything um and she sits me down after that and she asked me why did you poison me to give me breast cancer I had been worried about her I thought she had dementia after she retired, she started behaving like really what I thought was like erratically. But the erratic nature of it was just her own personality, but stronger. And I kept saying it's so weird, but maybe this is like a type of dementia. So I would try to call her doctor and stuff. Anyway, she sat me down and asked me that. And I said, what are you talking about? You know, how would I poison you to give you breast cancer? And she's like, well, I see these um, pills. I guess I had left some birth control pills that are happening. I see these pills you have laying around here and I know you put them in my food um, to make me sick. And I said, I don't live with you. Like, when would I, when exactly would I do this? And she was like, oh, you, people can do anything. People can do anything. And that moment is when it punched me in the face that this lady poisoned my food. Um, I mentioned to you before that my kidney issue was pretty under control, right? I was being seen by the doctor, whatever. Um, and two times in that year when I had visited her home, coming back to my house, I my kidneys failed. Um, and those were the only two visits I really made, you know, long visits I made to her house. Um, 
there was a point in time when she switched from not ever making me food to always having food ready at her house when I came there. Like, oh, do you want, I'm a vegan. So she's like, oh, do you want some tofu? Do you want some of this? Do you want some of that? And I thought it was her just like accepting my, like my food choices, right? Um, but now I understand that that was her vehicle, right? To doing whatever it is that she was doing. Um, and it was almost like confession on her part, basically. Uh, maybe because she's older, she can't hold, she's not able to hold those things anymore. Um, but those two things like finished, you know, finished that relationship. I haven't spoken to my mother since two days after my husband left. But I think I was really, afterward, I was much more devastated about the mother thing than about the ex-husband thing. Like once I understood that he was like intentional, you know, I was just kind of able to be like, fuck him. Um, my only problem with him was that because they think that everyone thinks like them, he kept asking, are you going to sign my green card? Are you going to sign my green card? Um, and I was like, I told you I was going to. But he just, you know, he couldn't believe me because he would not have, <laughs> he would not have kept his word to me. Um, but when I finally signed it, he left, like, he left me alone. He left me alone. Um, I am in contact with my stepkids a bit and his ex-wife. Um, but I was much more devastated about like the mother thing. Um, when you understand that your like mother never gave a fuck about you, that's a, that's like like your foundation, you know, in life. Um, and I kind of thought we were close until those last couple things. Um, but I realize now that's called uh, enmeshment <laughs> and not necessarily close closeness. And what have been the biggest things for you as far as healing goes? Uh, what have you been doing, you know, therapy or things like that? So when I first got out of my marriage, like when we separated, um, I was part of an online, because it was still the pandemic. Um, he tried to guilt me. What if I get COVID? I was like, you got it. I mean, what am I, <laughs> wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> You're asking me, but um, I started uh, on an online group. Um, the online group I think was good because it like toughened me up. Um, it was led by someone else who had a personality disorder, um, like knowingly had a personality disorder. Um, and I think that that was helpful to me to a degree because the focus was really more on like how can you build up your, how can you become less of a codependent and not so much on like, oh, my husband locked me in the closet. You know, it, it wasn't that. Uh, it was like, how do you not be a codependent? <laughs> what, you know, what are the, the things that you're dealing with that you can like really strengthen, you know, within yourself, um, boundaries and those types of things. So I really spent, I think I was in that group for a little over a year. Yeah. And then the personality disorder, the person in charge got him. It was too much. Um, and so I left. But I think that was really helpful for me um, not to have spent those first months like moaning and groaning, you know. But I wrote down everything that happened. But um, really thinking about, hey, what, what did I contribute um, to this dynamic, right? It's like a dance. You know, what was my dance part um, and what of that dance part do I need to like work on? Um, 
And then after that, I did, I, it's been hard finding like individual therapists. Um, I had a lot, well, so I've had a few um, since that time. It's hard. I'm, I always look for like black women because there's just some things I don't want to have to explain. Um, and it was very difficult to find people um, during the pandemic. Um, but I now have like two people that I see just because my insurance doesn't cover them. Um, and that's helpful as well, I guess. I, I really need someone that's more trauma informed. Um, I have been journaling um, as well. I really got serious about it, like maybe the beginning of this year. Oh, and I also had a neck issue for a long time. I come back occasionally, but not like before. It, and it made me like dizzy. I had gone for MRIs. It was the side of my neck that got most of the pressure when he strangled me. Um, and I met some women who work on issues of um, intimate partner violence, like through my job, like being, um, yeah. And they gave me like an exercise to do that had to do with like mindfulness and telling my neck, basically like, that, I love you. Like you are part of me and you just, um, and I think that be, that helped me a lot. Like I had like massagers <laughs> then I had like all like, those the electro the electrode thing that was your neck um but it didn't get better i'd get dizzy in the car and stuff um but after doing that for like two months you know the exercises that they told me and every time i massage that part of my neck like i cry so it helped like i got like a lot of that energy out um of that part of my body um and i do think that i do a lot better with somatic therapy i think i'm very like you know a school oriented so i'm like cerebral um, and so talk therapy for me, sometimes I can really be like in my head. Uh, and so I'm also seeking out more somatic stuff. So if you had any words of wisdom for everyone out there, what would they be? I was really inspired during the pandemic. I got addicted to TikToks, to the TikToks. I'm old, I have to say it wrong. Um, and, uh, I think one thing I found to be inspiring there was finding people who were in a similar situation um, as I am in, both in terms of like relationship with the mother um, and also like, you know, getting over um, romantic relationships. Um, but I think out of that, what really impressed me was younger people's ability to identify like these toxic uh, interactions and say, I'm not going to participate in them. Like the idea of cutting someone off, you know, in, or, or, or going no contact was, it's kind of unthinkable maybe for Gen Xers, um, with your family. And I, and I felt like supported in that, um, by, you know, young people who are doing that. Um, but I think the other thing I would say, and it's a feeling that I have now and that I appreciate is that like this experience for me was, I'm thankful for it, right? I'm, I'm thankful for like having married my horrible ex-husband because I don't, I think the universe had been trying for a long time to get me to see like the family situation I was coming from and I couldn't see it. Like I could not see it. How many times can someone kick you in your face and you think, oh, they keep slipping on a banana peel, you know, <laughs> you know, like um, only through this relationship was I able to see everything else around me. Like I was able to see my mother. Um, I was able to see her behavior and that it was not normal. Um, 
after I stopped speaking with her, a friend of mine came to me and said, um, you know, I'm glad that you got out of that. When your mom told you she wasn't going to give you the kidney transplant, my father asked me, is she adopted? Like, is that her real mother? And she said, yeah. And he was like, shocked. To me, that was normal, right? Like, why? <laughs> why was it normal? Because I just had never experienced anything else. So I really, I, I kind of appreciate this like last relationship because that's what I needed. Like that's how thick I was. That was what I'd say. Sometimes, you know, it's a something you wouldn't repeat again, maybe. Um, but I think in my case, maybe I would. Like maybe if I was just this thick and I needed to see, you know, what was really happening around me, I would have to repeat that again in another life to see it. Um, and I think in my case, I was lucky that I had an upper hand. I'm financially independent. Um, and so I was able, you know, to leave with just lost money, right? I, I didn't lose anything else. So those things are also context. But um, yeah, it's something I'm actually thankful for. And it sounds crazy, but I am. I, I wouldn't want to deal with my family. I don't talk to any of them anymore. Um, and I'm better for it. Well, Plum, I want to thank you for being here with us today, sharing your story and, you know, sharing your life with us and just this full kind of connection. You know, this is not just a story about your mom and the relationship. It's, you know, the connecting of your mom and the reverberations throughout everything coming for full circle and i think we've had maybe a couple episodes that have had that where the you know the mom plays a role kind of throughout in in a way for you to kind of figure out what is really going on and there's a lot of people who are dealing with the exact same thing that you're dealing with and you just did a great job of telling your story and you know you're going to help at least one person so a big thank you for being here with us today thank you brandon thank you everybody who for listening to me <laughs> Well, thank you once again, Plum, for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest like Plum was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we at NarcissistApocalypse.com have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, you'll see a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. And it is a wonderful group of people on there. And you can share your experiences and make friends as well. So if you need support, join Join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number, email address, and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you're in. Domesticshelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and a wonderful organization. So if you need extra support, please go to domesticshelters.org. 
And we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a new friend to the show and is an organization called Shelter Movers, and they can be reached at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. And it is a volunteer organization and a donor-supported charitable organization as well. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. It's an interesting part of the domestic violence escape process. And they help you get to safety, and they also get your things out of your home and into storage all of your belongings into storage and they can do this for your pets as well and your livestock too it is a wonderful organization so if you need help from them or just want to donate to them please go to sheltermovers.com and that is it for today's episode for today's story so for myself and plum we hope you have a good night <laughs>